If you're a North Korean news aficionado like me, you probably came across the NK News website well before discovering the podcast. It's an incredible source that gets you behind the headlines to give you what's probably the most reliable and evidence-based news on North Korea. Every business day, you'll get between 5 to 10 articles that provide exclusive news, detailed analysis, and informed opinions. And guess what? Each week, they send you forward-looking week-ahead briefings and news alerts to keep you ahead of the curve. There's more. NK News members also get special reader-only benefits, access to exclusive events and online conferences, and perpetual access to our archive of podcasts. And here's the best part. You can get a $100 discount on your annual subscription with the code PODCAST. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org discount. That's nknews.org discount. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsuit, and we're recording this on Tuesday, the 31st of October, 2023. And I'm joined here in the NK News studio by Jongmin Kim. Jongmin, welcome. Hi, Jacko. Jongmin has changed her hair, but that's not the focus of today's discussion. We're talking about some really interesting things that have happened into Korea in the last week. A couple of weeks ago, I was on the East Coast uh, with Chad O'Carroll and some people from the uh, North Korea from a near distance tour in Sokcho and Angosong. And these places get mentioned in the two stories that we're going to discuss today. So uh, basically, we've had two border cro- or two crossings of the northern limit line in the past week, both of them over on the east coast of Korea, uh, off the coast of Kangwon province. First, we had a North, de- North Korea defection where a boat came southward signaling an intent to defect, and that led to accusations of some lax border security. And then uh, later on, or was it the same day? Well, we'll get into those details. Uh, there was a rock vessel that went northward across the northern limit line to help a North Korean boat that was in some trouble. So, Jongmin, the northern limit line, got a funny status. Remind Mm. us, what what is it exactly? It's a maritime border, de facto maritime border between the two Koreas. But some people call it contested waters, or it's very confusing for some people to figure out which part is the border, actually. And it has a long history of the two Koreas trying to figure out what would be the right border for Mm -hmm. each other. Land border was easier, Mm. but maritime border, both on the Yellow Sea, where the islands are, and East Sea, where there's nothing. Right. Um, It's been complicated. Because the sea border was not spelled out in the armistice agreement, but the land border was, yeah. And it's very long. I understand that on the East Coast there, it goes out for 400 kilometers, which is really, that's, gosh, how wide? Remind me again, the, the Korean Peninsula is... 200 and something kilometers wide? Right. Actually, that's how the JCS described the eastern sea border, that it is as big as the Korean peninsula itself. That's Ah. why it's so difficult to monitor and there's no islands to have assets on. Okay. So what happened with this defection last week? The context here is that we have been seeing some high-profile defections. Uh, in high f- as in high-profile, I mean they were in the headlines. Mm-hmm. Earlier this year in spring, you remember there were a family on the Yellow Sea side right. that came in Over a boat. Over the West, yeah. Yeah, West Sea. But this time it was the East Sea. They also used a boat. It was a little bit bigger, uh, I heard, than the one that was used during 2019's Hamchuk incident. This was 7.5 meters long. Mm-hmm. There were apparently four people on board, three women, including uh, two women, one child, Mm. and one man. Okay. Was it a family? Do we know? 
It wasn't clear at the start, but during the, I think, Foreign Affairs and Unification uh, Committee at the Parliament, I think the Unification min Minister mentioned that the man did not look like directly related to them. Mm -hmm. But some reports say that they refer to themselves as a family. Okay, right. Okay, so they've uh, now here's a, a question, which is, I guess not just in this case, but generally speaking, mm. when a boat comes south of the northern limit line, sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's accidental. How is it that the South Korean military knows clearly if there's an intention to defect? Uh, is there a, like a manual? Are they supposed to ask certain questions like, mm. do you want to defect? How does that work? The do you want to defect part usually comes when they are in personal contact if the Navy vessel arrived there yep. and or when they arrive to the port and goes to the joint interrogation in, um, investigation by the NIS, the spy agency, uh -huh. and other authorities where they go through two months or three months of interviews. That's when they figure out whether or not their intention to defect is true. But that exact part, whether or not to, how, how they can figure out whether mm. or not this is a defection or infiltration, right. when you only see it on the radar or mm. thermal observation device, that's a difficult for, part for the military to figure out. And right. that's why the, this defection became controversial, actually. Well, and also because the, uh, the, the first person who really came into contact with them was a fisherman rather than a military boat. Exactly. So at first... This was weird because the South Korean military and the Coast Guard, they, it seemed like it, they were in an awkward situation a little bit. The military side of the argument is that they have been monitoring and tracking and trying to identify what this small dot is that they saw from Army radar. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the Army, at the end, they first spotted, the first thing they spotted was increased activity north of the maritime border. Apparently, the, those were North Korean patrol ships that were trying to chase ah. the defection boat. So that was before 4 a.m. That's when they, the military started monitoring. Yep. But until around two hours later, they were, still weren't sure if it needed an in-person investigation. At the end, they decided to do so. So they asked the Navy, but the Navy arrived only by 8 a.m. The Coast Guard ah. arrived first because the fishermen got in contact with this defection boat at around 7.10. And that's right. when this fisherman reported to the authorities, which was the Sokcho Coast Guard. Ah. Um, so a lot of media reports just hours after the, the, the findings started accusing the military of um, not being quick enough in dispatching this vessel after, this, after the detection and how the military should have uh, made er earlier and prompt action, even right. when it's not clear. And that was what the Democratic Party, the opposition party, was arguing for. Yeah, yeah. now the uh, Sokcho, of course, on, on the coast there, it's not the closest town to the Northern Limit Line. So mm -hmm. you, you've, I, I don't remember exactly how many kilometers it is, but it's a good half an hour drive at least from Sokcho up to the demilitarized zone. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a fair way down there. And so they actually took a lot of time Crossing the Enela and then reaching towards the Weongchi port, right. near the Weongchi port, I think 10 nautical miles away from the port of Sokcho. Mm -hmm. So actually, they came pretty far right. from these, the NLL. Presumably, these North Korean defectors are not in a speedboat. You know, they don't have a, a high capacity engine, right. high horsepower that is driving them fast. So they managed to have a lot exactly. of time to get across the NLL, down to Sokcho. That's where a fisherman saw them. He calls the Coast Guard. They come in, and then mm. finally the Navy comes in. Right, and the fishermen, there there were a few fishermen interviewed in local media, which was very fascinating. Mm. Um, first of all, the fishermen, uh, one expert, for example, that I talked to said that the actual people who safeguard the NLL are fishermen. Right. He said that. 
And the fisherman interview, it shows that he knew what to do. First of all, he mm-hmm. saw these people on board and they looked very apparently North Korean. Mm-hmm. He offered cigarette and water. Mm-hmm. The North Koreans at first were like, no, no, we're okay. But then at the end, they took it. And then um, apparently this fisherman tried to soothe this, these defectors saying that you're in South Korean waters, now you're safe. Mm-hmm. And apparently these individuals on the boat looked above and there were some South Korean assets, aircrafts that were coming in and they got scared. Mm. And the fishermen did the job explaining who they are um, and saying that you're safe. Um, mm-hmm. So it seems like he was very helpful. Wow. But because he was so helpful, yeah. the opposition party's main point is that that was supposed to be the South Korean authorities' job. Right, that they should have been there first. And so there's been this whole debate there between uh, politicians on both sides of the National Assembly and also the military about whether this is everything is normal or if the system is somehow broken. Mm. Well, another part is that there was a very long South Korean uh, parliamentary audit on government administration um, administration branches that were going on for weeks. Huh. That's why there were just increased um, noise or right. you know debates in in the parliament between the two parties. And the I think this also relates to how the government, Yoon Seok-yeol administration, and the People Power Party has been pushing very hard mm. to. Uh, temporarily or suspend the effects of CMA, Comprehensive Military Agreement. Ah. And one part of the main arguments that the defense minister, new defense minister, Shin won has been pushing for is that because of the aerial buffer zone, it's difficult for South Korea to maintain its reconnaissance capabilities. So that's the peg that the People Power Party went for, mm. saying that it's because of the CMA. Ah. That um, was because that was why it was difficult for Nikita. Wait, to so open. under the CMA, they wouldn't be able to fly drones ar- over suspicious boats and um, find out? They cannot go too close. I see, okay. Hmm. Hmm. All right, well, uh, you, had, you, you finished off with an interesting quote from uh, Yang Uk, who sort of kind of summarized it all. And, and could you sort of tell us what he said? Dr. Yang Uk, a military analyst at Asan Institute, he had a very interesting insight on this. Hmm. Um, he was saying that it is true that the military should be ashamed of boasting of this as a total success ah. because it wasn't. But it's also, he's saying that it's also unfair for the Democratic Party lawmakers to criticize this government's military for lack security or security failure yep. because, first of all, they t- did detect it very well, mm-hmm. which is an improvement from a few years before. Mm-hmm. Second of all, Dr. Young's argument was that if the after the CMA, the South Korean military units actually implemented and practiced a joint joint operation between Navy and Army despite the buffer zone mm-hmm. and actually increased the capability for reconnaissance, um, this kind of thing would not would not have happened like that. Mm. So he's saying that the fault lies in both not just one. Okay, so basically saying to the, the, the Democratic Party that you tied the military's hands behind their back and mm. now you're criticizing them for not being mm. better operationally. Mm. So, and, yeah, okay. and, and then to say that, uh, for the Democratic Party to say that, oh, we were doing much better mm. uh, during our government's time is, is not a fair comment. Okay, now let's quickly move on to our second story about, this is an, a very unusual one, where a, a South Korean Navy vessel actually... Uh, made a very rare move of crossing the northern limit line to go to the northern side. Mm. Why? This is very, very rare. It almost never happens, Mm. or even when it happens, it's never publicized. Ah. And also, this was a Sunday. 
On Sundays, it's very rare for journalists to get long texts mm-hmm. from Joint Chief of Staff unless there's a missile from North Korea. Mm. But this was one of the rare cases where JCS, in early evening around 5 p.m., they texted the journalists saying that there's something going on at the NLL and it's humanitarian purposes. JCS said that our side, South Korean side of the Navy vessels, have had to cross the NLL temporarily just mm-hmm. a little bit. Because there was a stranded boat from North Korean side, uh, three just three kilometers away from the NLL, where the reportedly the individuals were waiting a white object. Mm-hmm. So the South Korean side of the patrol ship saw it as a distress code. Mm-hmm. So they approached the boat and saw and talked to the North Koreans who said that they were stranded in the sea adrift for ten days, and all they wanted was water and food, and that they want to go back to North. Do we know Korea. how many North Koreans were on this boat? It's unclear. Okay. And this is not the same day, but a couple of days after the defection. A couple of days defection, after, oh, right? around a week after. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm. And so we've got some North Koreans on a boat. Now, that boat is, is stranded. So maybe they're suffering engine failure or they run out of fuel. It's north of the northern limit line. Mm. But the South Korean Navy have gone over there to sort of help out. Right, for, on humanitarian grounds, because they spotted right. them. But here's an interesting thing. Mm. When something like this happens, especially the NLL, it's not like it never happens because there's a lot of fishermen mm-hmm. in the East Sea and the West Sea. Yep. And from the fishermen's point of view, with not the best technological assets that they have on board, sometimes it's difficult to figure out where they are. Right, um, right. And also, the South Korean Navy side, they mm-hmm. know where the NLL is, but they still decided to technically it. breach it, yeah. uh, cross the NLL, um, seeing that it's a call for help. Mm-hmm. But the, the most interesting thing here is that since earlier this year, all the South Korea and North Korea hotlines were cut. Um, mm. Not technically cut, severed, right. but it's Just more like used. North Koreans haven't been picking up for months, right. although South Koreans still call them. So there was no means to contact North oh. Koreans when they were crossing the NLL when they saw that the North Koreans needed help. So that's why the JCS texted the journalists, ah. it seems, because JCS also explained this yesterday on Monday, mm-hmm. that they told the press during the operation, which is very oh, rare. Oh, in real time. A few hours later, but pretty much real time before Mm -hmm. the North Korean vessel came to tow the boat away. They did this to first, they wanted the news to reach North Korea quickly, although Ah. they were using the international maritime system and the UNC to contact North Koreans. They didn't say it out loud, but it sounds like it was difficult to contact Mm. North Korea. Um, So they wanted to use the press to help make North Korea know about the stranded vessel. Right, so don't don't shoot us, we're just helping out on humanitarian grounds. and that's the second part. They Mm. wanted to avoid accidental clashes Mm. um, because it was technically military asset. Right, right. Um, So they didn't want North Koreans to think that this is an infiltration. So it's an un- unusual case of using the media to try to de-escalate a potential situation here, or at mm. least de-risk something there. What kind of a humanitarian aid did they give to the, the defectors, uh, the people, not defectors, the this North is, Koreans on the fishing boat? Mm, this is per report. I didn't hear from the JCS directly about this, but apparently the Navy vessel gave, gave them not only water, but also, of course, choco pie, choco pies um, and chocolate cereal bars mm-hmm. and kopap, which is a instant ah. rice in a bowl mm. um, that's sort of like cup ramen. Yep. But it's but rice. rice. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you think that in a situation like that, they mm. would be interested in finding out whether the people on board want to defect? I'm, given that they're north of the northern limit line? It would have been very tricky, yeah. but I'm sure there's a guideline for that. And this is honestly 
monitoring South Korean government and military, it's very rare for journalists to say that they did the right job because it's our job to criticize them. Mm -hmm. But this was a moment where I think that the Navy did the right thing because I think I'm pretty sure that they check their intention whether or not to go home or defect. But from them waving the white object Mm -hmm. and also talking to them directly Mm -hmm. and the North Koreans expressing their intention that they want to return home, I'm pretty sure the Navy checked that. But if this was a progressive administration, I'm also pretty sure that the opposition party, the conservative party, would bring this issue up to check it it thoroughly. So ultimately, uh, what happened here is that a a North Korean naval vessel came in and towed the fishing boat away. That part's a little bit unclear because Mm. um, South Korean vessel only stayed north of the NLL Uh, for around an hour, it seems. And they came back after helping the North Korean. So they didn't stick around. I don't think they sticked around for too long. Um, It it seemed like it was a fishing boat, according to reports. And JCS explained that later that night Mm -hmm. on Sunday, a North Korean Korean authorities came to tow them back. Time right, oh, hours after. Gosh, okay. and hours after, uh, JCS texted the journalists, and reports ah. went out. Now I have to wonder whether the North Korean military might be in trouble for not reaching the boat first before the South Korean Navy, mm. just as in South Korea, the South Korean Navy were in trouble for or criticized for mm. uh, not reaching that defection vessel a week earlier before the fishermen did. Right, that's what I wonder too. But North Korean side reconnaissance capabilities. South Koreans also have very much of a difficulty trying Mm -hmm. to track what's going on in LLL. So it's pretty much the same or even worse in North Korea, probably. And also, this is not like it's the first time and a fishing boat went stranded Mm -hmm. from the North Korean side. It happened 2019 and before as well. Has North Korea made any public media statement about this incident at all? No. Journalists asked JCS if the North Korean authorities said said thanks Mm -hmm. or, you know, said anything really. But they did not convey any further comments or remarks or statements afterwards. Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two very interesting stories there from the East Coast, from the Mm -hmm. Northern Limit Line. Thanks for updating us today, Jongmin. And stick around because after this break, we'll have my interview with Victor Cha and Ramon Pacheco-Perna about their new book on uh, the history of North and South Korea. Which I wrote an endorsement on. Hey! (laughs) Thanks very much for coming on the show. See you again next time. Thank you, Jaco. Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro News and Analysis Service. This is not your average news service. It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? The absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles. It's just pure, objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org slash podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org slash podcast. Hello, listeners, and welcome to our longer interview for uh, this month. And joining me in the studio today, I have Victor Cha and Ramon Pacheco-Pardo, authors of the new book, Korea, A New History of South and North. Victor Cha is Senior Vice President for Asia and Korea Chair at CSIS. He's also the Distinguished University Professor and Professor of Government at Georgetown University. He was appointed in 2021 by the Biden administration to serve on the Defense Policy Board in an advisory role to the Secretary of Defense. 
Ramon Pacheco-Pardo is head of the Department of European and International Studies and Professor of International Relations at King's College London and the KFVUB Career Chair at the Brussels School of Governance of Vrije Universiteit Brussel. Ramon was previously on the episode 112 of this podcast. Welcome on the show, Victor, and welcome back on the show, Ramon. Thanks. Thanks Happy for having us. Here. Now, in the last two decades, I've really I've lost count. When I first started studying North Korea back in the late 90s, there was a, a possibility that one could read everything in English on North Korea in a couple of years with application. But now in the last two decades, there have been so many books written about North and South Korea. This is a history of both. Why is it necessary at this time? What hole does it seek to fill? Well, I would say that at least in my reading of the literature and when I teach courses on Korea at Georgetown, I always default to a book that was written, I don't know, about 15 years ago, revised, but originally written about 15 years or longer ago by Don Oberdorfer the called two The Two Koreas. Great book. Which is a fantastic book, but I don't remember, Ramon, how far up it goes, but it certainly doesn't cover things like BTS, the UN administration, North Korea's vastly grown nuclear program. And so we thought it was important to write a book now that sort of took the history up to date, particularly given all the interest in Korea there is today among younger generations because of popular Korean culture and music. So that was one of the reasons we wrote it. And I also wanted to write a book that I could assign in class. So, <laughs> so, ah, uh, so there's a little, little bit of self-interest there. Yeah, a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> but it, it's similar. I mean, from my perspective, when we teach about Korea, the Oberdorfer book is the one uh, I was using until, until recently. And uh, Kim Jong-un, for example, is not covered. Right. Uh, and all the South Korean culture is not covered, but also uh, the growing foreign policy role that South Korea has, economic role, technology role, is not covered in that book because it wasn't part of Korea until there. And I think that was the main uh, motivation, uh, to be honest. And, and, and coming from Europe, I've seen the increasing interest on Korean affairs, but mm. recently really driven by South Korea. So I think it's important to, to, to ah. tell this story as well. Right. Well, you've already uh, preempted my next question, which is what earlier book on North or South Korea do you hold <laughs> up as a standard? And we already know it's, uh, it's Don Oberdorfer, or I should say Don Oberdorfer, Don Oberdorfer and uh, Bob Carlin, because he did the, rewrite, uh, the, the, the update of, uh, of the two careers. So that's the standard. Uh, is there anything else that you sort of hope that your book will be a companion piece or a successor volume two, or is that pretty much it? Well, the other book to me uh, and, uh, that I think certainly is one I look to for Korean history is the it was written much, much longer, 25 or more years ago. That was the team-written book by Carter Eckert at Harvard and Iggy Beck and I think some, uh, a number of others, Korea Old and New, yeah. which I think is also a fantastic book. And Carter reminded me about how fantastic that <laughs> book was when I spoke at Harvard last week, <laughs> uh, if Carter's listening. But no, seriously, that is really a very good book. And those, to me, when we wrote this book, those were the two that I kind of had in mind, uh, Korea Old and New and the two Koreas. Now, which audience did you have in mind when writing this book? Is it for a, a general lay reader coming to Korea New, or is it somebody already in Korean studies? Do you want to start off with that, Ramon? Uh, absolutely. I think the, the two main audiences we had in mind is uh, one of them, the, the, the student who is starting to study about Korea, any aspect of Korea, whether it's uh, nuclear weapons uh, or Korean culture and wants to learn about the history of the country. Uh, and, and the other one, as you were saying, the, the lay audience that has an interest in Korea, has never studied Korea, they're beyond the age of studying at university, or they don't want to take a whole degree on Korean or Asian studies. 
And uh, we have had already a few launch events, right, for the book. Yeah. And we have seen that this latter audience has really dominated people who are interested in Korean culture. Right. And uh, especially Korean culture, it could be other issues as well, but especially Korean culture. And said, well, I wanted to learn the history of the country that whose culture I'm actually following yeah. uh, for the past 10 years or so, whether it's uh, pop or dramas or, or movies. So those were the two main target audiences. Uh, having said that, the book is based on academic research. So... We relied a lot on our own academic research yep. and more research that we had done over the decades, really, and more research that we did specifically for the book, for example, on late 19th century, early 20th century uh, history. And we included that in the book. So it is not an academic book, but there's a reason why it came out with an academic press, because it is actually based on academic research, even though it's for a more general uh, audience. Right. So is it sort of in an in-between space, Victor, between is it a general book and an academic book? Yeah, I think in the business they call it act trade. Ah. <laughs> uh, academic and academic book and a trade book, yep. as Ramon said, published by Yale, Yale University Press. But I, I, would, I have to say that I agree entirely with my co-author that that's the way we intended the book to be written. But in the, in the couple of um, book talks that we've given in Europe, I was really surprised at the audience that showed up. I mean, yeah, this, what kind of people? Yeah, so, this, so like, I, this is like my sixth or seventh book. And so I've done book promotions for all of them. And the audience for the, like when we were in Brussels and in London, first of all, it was completely sold out. So where, where was it advertised? Was it an, uh, an event open to the public? It was, o- it was open to the public, yeah. and and the events were all sold out. And the we would ask the audience, like, why are you here? Yeah. Right? And so we would ask, like, you know, are you here for North Korean nuclear weapons? And, like, there's one guy in the back with a crew cut, clearly military, <laughs> he'll raise his hand. Yeah. And then we ask, like, is it because of Korean business? And maybe a couple of people raise their hand. Then we ask, is it Korean culture? And everybody raises their hand. Hmm. And so this is clearly an audience that has come to know Korea yep. through music and dramas and everything. And now they want to learn more about the country and its history. Right. Um, and that was certainly the type of questions that we got from people and why people were interested in coming to the talk and then getting the book because they wanted to read about it. So it was, to me, it was a very different experience in, as an author writing yep. about Korea that this book we didn't plan it this way, but this book came out at a, at a time where Korea, uh, Korean po- uh, culture is so popular right mm. now all over the world. Um, we just happened to have a book which had a hot pink cover, ah. which <laughs> also sort of uh, lent to this notion of uh, K-pop. And so I was really quite surprised at the audience. I, didn't, I, I expected to see you know, half academics, half graduate students, but really people from everybody from teenagers to grandmas and grandpas who had some interest in Korea related to Netflix, K-dramas, K-pop, these sorts of things. Now, at uh, 288 pages, this is a a very compact history of the two Koreas. You obviously had to be selective in choosing what to include and then brief in choosing how to describe or explain those things that you included. Uh, The book has seven chapters that go and chronological order from 1945 to, to this year, 2023. But could you say a little bit about how you organize the material? So, uh, I mean, the, the book starts in the late 19th century, right? And then uh, goes all the way to, to this year, uh, as, as you were saying. I, I think what we tried to do was uh, essentially to give more or less equal space to these different time periods, mm. not to prioritize one over another. And when it came to the post-partition post-division of Korea years, to discuss both Koreas in the same chapter. 
as opposed to having a chapter on North Korea, a chapter on South Korea, or two chapters on North Korea and South Korea, to basically show how having the same starting point, because obviously Korea was a unified country all the way until uh, the 1945-48 uh, period, right? How from the same starting point in 1948, when the division was became a formal division, the two of them evolved in, in different ways. And I think it was important for us to actually show, and we make this thing clear in the book, that the same type of people, depending on the type of political regime they may have, is a, is a point that Victor has made in many of the uh, book presentations that we have had, it led to different outcomes. Mm. Uh, and we were very much interested in that. And the second aspect I found very interesting is we started in late 19th century discussing how Korea is divided, a weak country that is really at the mercy of, of great powers, really, yeah. you know, China, Japan, Russia, uh, US as well. And we get to 2023 and you have a South Korea that is globally recognized culturally, but also powerful in economic terms, in political terms, in security terms. And of course, North Korea in a different way, nuclear weapons and, and um, militarily being, being strong. Yeah, certainly come a long, a long way uh, in 150 years. Victor, I wonder if you could talk about it a little bit during the early years, I mean, post the Korean War, both Koreas were very authoritarian, undemocratic, and trying to compete in industrial growth to, to outdo each other. Could you point out a couple of markers along the last 70 years where North and South Korea really and clearly diverged from each other and, and took very different or led to different outcomes? Well, I mean, there are, there are so many, I guess. So one of them I would pick, I guess, would be uh, 1965, which was the decision by the South Korean regime to normalize relations with Japan. Uh -huh. Something North Korea still hasn't done. Something North Korea still hasn't done. Very unpopular at the time. Mm -hmm. you, they were protests in the street. Sometimes still unpopular. Yeah, well, very unpopular today too, but you know, at that time, quite unpopular. Yeah. Yet it was, in the end, very critical to South Korea's economic ta takeoff, right? The low interest loans, the technology, the steel industry, the heavy chemical industry. It was really the genesis of South Korea's economic boom. It wasn't immediately apparent. It became apparent much later on. The second, I would say, would be probably 1990, when after South Korea's Soviet normalization, the Soviet Union made the decision to no longer provide fuel to North Korea at discounted prices, at mm. patron aid prices, which led to, I think, something like a 60% drop year on year in North Korean imports of Soviet energy, which then eventually led to deforestation of the country which then led to the flooding, which then led to the famine. Uh -huh. So you see a, a sort of a straight line from the Soviet Union saying, we want cash or you know, um, some kind of goods in kind to the value of our energy exports to you, from that to the floods and the famine. I think they're very much related. As part of that 1990 deal between the Soviet Union and South Korea, South Korea gave the Soviet Union a $3 billion loan. This was all part of Gorbachev's effort at trying at perestroika at home, yeah. but also trying to, to increase Soviet uh, economic interaction with, with East Asia. And the Soviets weren't going to turn around with a $3 billion loan from the South, South Koreans and then subsidize North Korean fuel. Right, right, right. And so this was, you know, this was, a, I think, really the beginning. I mean, the North Korean economy was starting to fall apart before them, but this is really the beginning of the end. Yeah of the North Korean economy, which had, you know, and it had devastating impact by, we saw by the mid-1990s when the famine became very, very clear. So I would pick those two points if mm. I had to pick two. I'm sure there are others, but I would pick those two if put on the spot. Yeah, that's a good starting point. Uh, Ramon, would you add any? No, I mean, th those two are, are essential to understand the two 
different outcomes in, in, in the two Koreas. I mean, in, in South Korea, of course, you could add the start of the of the PAC administration that did normalize relations uh, with Japan, but also really emphasize economic growth and economic development as not the single goal, but the really most important goal that South Korea had uh, to achieve. And it was single-minded pursuit of economic growth from that moment uh, onwards by all necessary means, means whether it was a normalization with Japan or focusing on specific sectors that were going to help the Korean economy, the South Korean economy long term. So those ones we do emphasize in the book. I will also add post-1997, post-1997, if we move on to contemporary Korea, because that's when there was a clear decision to say, okay, we need to focus on technology and innovation. Not that Korean companies were not thinking about it before, they were. Yeah. But that was the point in time in which, of course, this was right also right before China was about to join the WTO. So Korean companies and the government said, unless we focus on technology, we're going to be taken over by China economically. Right. Yeah. We're not going to be able to compete with Japan, which back then was still more advanced, never mind uh, US and, and, mm. uh, and Europe. Plus, uh, it was a point in time when there were different ways out of the crisis. One of them could have been, let's go back to the old model, right? Yeah. Uh, without reform. But there was reform and very much focus on this innovation that I think today is the hallmark of the South Korean economy. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that, 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 that's great answers. I th- one of the things that I would well, come up in my mind is that uh, South Korea once was on the track to maybe having nuclear weapons back in the 1970s, and, and that was you know, bopped on the head by America, and it didn't go ahead, and, and North Korea went ahead with that. So, that. so both Koreas at some point made a choice about pursuing or not pursuing nuclear weapons, and that they both could have had them, but uh, or they both could have not had them. And so that's a, a big difference there, and it's a big t- decision about how to use resources, obviously. But yeah, that's uh, there's always a lot of points that one could uh, pick for diversion. Uh, both Koreas, let, let's look at what they have in common. They still claim sovereignty over the entire Korean peninsula, making it difficult to recognize the legitimacy of the other side, and both still ban the dissemination of literature and images from the other side, as well as unsanctioned contact and communication between the peoples of the two Koreas. So in that sense, uh, they, well, they do have that in common still. Is this something that you see as holding back into Korean relations or understanding over time? I mean, arguably, yes. I think it's more, I, you know, frankly, I don't think exposure to North Korean propaganda is much of a threat. I certainly think from a North Korean perspective, exposure to South Korean uh, media, culture, news, com- people is, is seen as a core threat to the regime's survival. So there could probably be liberalization on the South Korean side that I think would do little damage, but I don't foresee anything like that happening on the North Korean side. As long as the current regime is in place and as long as they value the control of information it's really the number one national security concern. I think, yes, they're building nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles, but their number one national security concern is to not allow their people to know what's going on in the outside world, not allow them to have interaction with the outside world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, would you agree with that? Yes, no, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, and uh, let's face it, South Koreans access North Korean products if they want to, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, even though it's banned, of course, they, they, they do so. And, and of course, we know it has been some spread in, in North Korea, but not as, as wide. And this has been clamped down, especially recently, actually, yeah. by the government, right? We've, we've seen it, uh, all the news coming out of North Korea, this being clamped down by the, by the government. Uh, I, I do also think that in the case of, of, of South Korea, there is also the component of uh, curiosity. My impression is that North Koreans are more curious about North Korea than South Koreans are about the, the, the North, right? That, South Korean, especially, I know the younger generation, of course, right, we talk about it. The interest in North Korea is there, but clearly it's not as high as interest in so many other issues that they want to focus on. 
I'm not talking, only talking about their own economic well-being, but other cultural products from other countries, for example. Mm. I think the Pyeongchang Olympics was very interested because remember we had the North Korean yeah. uh, supporters who came here. Many North Koreans felt that this was very alien, right? This is not something that we do anymore in how we support our, our teams or the type of culture that we produce. And I found it interesting because that was a clear instance of North Korea could have influenced South Korea, but it influenced South Korea in a negative way. Main South Koreans feeling, well, this is this is very alien mm. to the way we are today, right? Maybe this was in the 60s, 70s, we may have been the same way. And I find that very interesting point in time that we don't talk much about, but it really shaped perceptions of many South Koreans about North Korea as well, when they had this direct access to the way North Korea, in this case, supports its team, but also produce culture. You could say this is culture, right? Uh, supporting your team in this type of way. Yeah, yeah. I think that throughout history, there have been you know, uh, several moments like that. I remember back in, I think it was 2003, there was the um, university students games held down in Daegu. And uh, some North Korean supporters came down for that. And there was a, uh, it was a rainy day. The bus was traveling between one venue and another. And suddenly they saw stretched across the road a banner with a photograph of Kim Dae-jung and Kim Jong-il from their 2000 summit shaking hands. And the banner was getting wet in the rain. And the bus stopped and the North Koreans ran from the bus in the rain, crying, tears streaming down their face as they formed uh, a, a human ladder or somehow managed to climb up the, uh, the, the pole to, to pull that banner down and respectfully fold it up so that Kim Jong-il's face would no longer get wet and, and would not be creased or folded and bring it back into the bus. And, and, and that was a moment that many South Koreans thought, wait, what, who are they? what? What's going on here? <laughs> I, I was in Korea. I was in Korea at the time. I remember watching it on the news, actually. Yeah. <laughs> because it was in all the news, right? Was, right. Oh, wow, we, it got we, a we, lot of replay. We would never do this for our own president, right? right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so we, we've had these moments throughout the years there where uh, it's kind of reinforced. For those people who weren't here 20 years ago, we do it all over again. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, okay. Now, uh, in, in writing this book, I understand that you received support from the uh, South Korean government's Ministry of Education and the Academy of Korean Studies. Is this book still able to be unbiased and written objectively about the two careers? Can you say more about that, Victor? Sure. So this book was part of a project that we received a grant from the Academy of Korean Studies. Uh, it's what's called the Global Lab Project, where they allowed us to organize around a theme. In this case, it was South Korea, democracy and foreign policy. And three independent scholars in the lab, I directed the lab, were to produce three books mm -hmm. on South Korea and some things to do with South Korean democracy and foreign policy. The Academy of Korean, I mean, the Academy of Korean Studies had absolutely no say over the content of these books. The grant was based on a proposal that we wrote about the books that we were going to write. The other, the other, so it was myself, Ramon, and then another scholar Joan Cho at Wesleyan University. Um, she wrote a book about South Korean democracy to be published by Columbia University Press. Ramon's book on South Korean foreign policy, also published by Columbia. Yeah. Mm. And then this book published by Yale were the three books that come out of this. Ah. Uh, Joan's book is about South Korean democracy. It's an excellent book. It's her tenure book at, at Wesleyan. Ramon's book on South Korean foreign policy, and then our book on North and South Korean history, so the, the, as, a, as a condition of the grant, they liked us, they require us to put that little statement in there, but they had no say at all over the content or what we chose to wrote about, write about. You didn't submit a draft to them before publication? No. Okay. No. no. They see a proposal upon yeah. which they make grant decisions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, we got a grant, the, we being CSIS got a grant to run the lab. 
many other universities, scholars at other universities has re- have received these grants. I mean, I give the Academy of Korean Studies lots of credit because through these grants, they get to see good scholarship published on Korea, you know, three books for each grant that they give in everything from Korean religion, history, and culture to politics, economics, and security. So I think it's a great initiative on their part, mm. but they clearly understand that there's a firewall and that they don't have any say over what the scholars publish, and nobody is required to submit to them any drafts for their approval. It's interesting. Sometimes it, it seems that South Korean government institutions related to, to academic research are a bit squeamish about anything that touches on North Korea. But in this case, they were uh, happy to, to go ahead with the, the project that looks at the history of both Koreas. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, we, I don't think after we got the grant for them, the, I don't think we ever heard a word from them. Ah. So, uh, so I, you know, again, I think it's a, it's, a good, it's a good initiative. I mean, I give Korean foundations and institution, grant-giving institutions a lot of credit in the sense that they understand mm. what the, the meaning is of a firewall between funder and scholarship, and they don't go anywhere near it. So. Now, you each bring something quite unique to the table. Ramon, as well as an academic, uh, you've also been involved in Track 1.5 and Track 2 dialogues with North Korean and South Korean government folks and have been an advisor to the British Foreign Office and to the Republic of Korea Foreign Ministry. Uh, While, Victor, you've worked for the U.S. government, specifically on the uh, uh, National Security Council as Director for Asian Affairs during the administration of George W. Bush and as the U.S. Deputy Head head of Delegation for the Six-Party Talks, you almost became U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Korea during the term of Donald Trump, and now you're on the Defense Policy Board under President Biden as advisor to the Secretary of Defense. Could you both speak a little bit about how your experience outside academia informed the insights that you included in the book? Uh, I mean, in my case, coming from Europe, obviously, when it comes to uh, policy towards Korea, we are not the U.S., clearly, yeah. right? Uh, we have uh, good relations with, with South Korea and the relations that we have with North Korea as well. For me, it was very helpful, A, in um, getting access to North Korea, so obviously through this 1.5 and, and, and 2. Uh, dialogues and it's interesting when you talk to them. They are diplomats, of course, so they have to push forward the, the, the policy of their country, but they're also human beings, right? And it's interesting to be able to talk to them uh, at a human level when you attend uh, this meeting. Of course, uh, you're not only in the meetings, you also have uh, dinner together or lunch together or uh, coffee breaks, right? And and that's helpful because obviously their perspective is very different from the one you get from, from a defector, for example, or a refugee, whichever way you want to to call them right, that will have a very different perception of sure. what is life in, in North Korea. So that was extremely, extremely helpful. Uh, we, we were able to draw from that experience to in, in, in writing the yes, book? Yes, of course you cannot cite these people, right? Yeah. But obviously it informs the way you see North Korea, right? Uh, in my case, it, it, it really did. And actually, uh, having said that, there's one conversation of, without giving any details mm-hmm. that I was able to, to include about talking to a North Korean uh, o- o- official, right? And how interested this person was on how Seoul looks like, right? Yeah. Because obviously this person had never been to, to, right. s- to South Korea. And that, that meant to the book. Uh, so that was very important. I mean, when it comes to advising garments, UK garments, or the European Union or NATO, for example, that's not really part of this book, I would say, uh, because as I said, um, our relationship with both Koreas is not the relationship that the US <laughs> has with, yeah. with South Korea, right? So maybe that informed a bit less what was included uh, in the book, and it was more about the interactions with, uh, with North Koreans in this case. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Victor? So I, w- I mean, I'd offer two observations in terms of the question. The, the first, I think, is so we both of us tried to include anecdotes from our life outside scholarship in the book to try to give it more color 
in one case, we open, I think we open the book with uh, a story of mine where I was in North, when I was in government, I was in North Korea for negotiations and then came back, we drove back from Pyongyang through the DMZ. And then just like when you, first when you're in Pyongyang, it reminded me of Seoul like in the 1970s and 80s in terms yeah. of the general feel of it. Like yeah. it, that's sort of when things stopped, right? In, yeah. North, it's, it's of course changed since then, but that's what it felt like then. Um, and then once you leave um, Unification Arch, right, the southernmost arch from Pyongyang, yeah. and you take the... the the, 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 uh, the two women touching the hands, hands across right. the uh, the roadway on right. the way to Panmunjom. Right. Once yeah. you get past that and past the... Um, Kim, what was what used to be Kim Jong Il's movie studios on the left, ah. and then you start going all the way down. It's just the barren nothingness, and then you see Ke, uh, this. You pass by the city of Kaesong, second largest city, but also very underdeveloped. And then I went over to the South Korean side. You know, walked across the MDL where where ah, you made the overland crossing. So few yeah. people do. You're yeah, a, yeah. part of a rare club. And then flew from there. Took a helicopter from there into Seoul because I was to meet with the South Korean president to wow. talk about the trip. And I was in this Black Hawk helicopter headed back to Seoul, and we come across, we start to see the skyline of Seoul. Yeah. And I just spent three days in, in, in Pyongyang. And it just, at that moment, I just, it just dawned on me that, like, this is what politics can do to a country. Mm. Same people, right? Same blood. Yeah. But two different political systems and this is you know this is the difference and so you know there there's stories like that that you can only gain from experience in policy that really sort of give you perspective on all that you've been studying so i think you know that was really important the other i think is that you know when in academia right when governments make agreements it's very easy to criticize those agreements Right. It's yeah. very easy to say, like, you know, I mean, look at sort of the labor compensation deal that Yun did, right? The, you know, everybody criticized it. They're like, you know, the Japanese gave nothing. Like, it's so easy to criticize agreements that governments make. But when you have actually been in that chair yeah. making those agreements, policy doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? And policymakers, there are so many different obstacles and variables. They are jumping for joy if they can accept if if they can accept the good, mm -mm. not the perfect. Yep. Academics always want the perfect. Right, right. Policymakers are just looking. They they're happy if they can get the good. They're happy if they can get half a loaf. Right. And so I, you know, as a foreign policymaker, I have a lot of sympathy for that. So as a scholar now, I look at agreements that governments make. I don't, my first reaction isn't immediately say, I know what the perfect agreement looks like. This right. is not perfect. And here are all the things that are wrong with it. Right. I understand that they had, there are so many different obstacles and variables, and this was the best that they could do, right? Yeah. It's not like these policymakers were like, oh yeah, we never thought of that. Like we never thought of, of making it more perfect by having the Japanese give everything. Mm -hmm. Of course they did, but it was not realistic or possible. So. I guess the main lesson there for me is that, you know, in policy, in scholars want the perfect. Uh, policymakers never let perfect be the enemy of the good. And if they can get the good, they're jumping for joy because most of the time they don't get the good. They can just achieve the bad. Listening to both of you, I'm, uh, one thought that strikes me is the very unique and outsized role that the United States has in the history of the two Koreas from 1950 on. Uh, so you, we've got two co-authors here, one American, one European. 
Is there a, a I mean, can there even be a, a, an independent European vision of, of the two <laughs> Koreas? I mean, it is, it, does America loom over everything? Well, we discussed this actually right in the book and ah. afterwards. We realized that US and Europe maybe have different approaches to study Korea precisely because we don't have the alliance yeah. in Europe, right? And, and, and be, to be fair, I mean, our interest across Europe on Korea is much more recent. Right. I mean, yeah. the case of the U.S., it has been there for a very long period of time, plus the alliance, of course, which shapes the way the U.S. interacts with, with, with South Korea. So, so I think it is possible. And what we realize, I think, is that in Europe, we take more this Korean studies approach, maybe, right? As opposed to more the, the, the foreign policy, political relationship between both. That in the case of the U.S., for good reason, is, is quite important, right? Yeah. And when you take a Korean studies uh, approach, then there are issues that maybe... I wouldn't say you sympathize more with South Korea, but you take a position that may not be taken by an American mm. because you're looking maybe from the, through the prism of this Korean studies, uh, Korean approach, yeah. not so much your own European country approach because your country had no influence whatsoever on this particular decision. So even if we look to the early 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, right, the powers that were influencing Korea, yes, there was Russia, but I guess Russia was far less influential, obviously, than uh, China, Japan. And the United States, mm. right? So we don't focus so much on the American perspective of this. It would be more okay. What do we have it meant for for Korea without discrediting the American view, of course, but just saying yeah. that mayor mentality is given a, in a different way in this sense. I think that's right. I mean, Ramon's being polite, but uh, you know, I write I write from an American perspective. Yeah, what well, did you can't avoid? <laughs> yeah, and so I mean, there was one time when we were writing about the post forty five to outbreak of the Korean War period, so nineteen forty five yep. to nineteen fifty. Very tumultuous years. Very tumultuous years, and I was thinking about it entirely from a U.S. perspective. So I was talking about John Hodge yep. and and you know all the mistakes the U.S. occupation made Plenty. and how we were focused on Japan, not mm. on Korea, and all this. And then Ramon very politely said, you know, maybe we should say something about Korean society <laughs> after liberation from Japan and, you know, being one country after liberation from Japan, you know, before we get to the war. And our editor was like, yeah, maybe we should do that. And that was when I realized that, you know, I, I think, I write, and I teach about uh, Korea from a very American perspective. So in that sense, that's why it was really great yeah. to partner with, um, uh, to do this from a European and American perspective. Perhaps in the ideal world, Ramon, you should just keep following Victor around for the rest of his working life <laughs> and always be there every time he writes or Carrying says Carrying the bag, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, but I think he's right that uh, the, the European perspective is, mu is more recent mm. on Korea, and it's not you know, heavily colored by the alliance, the military, the security aspect. And for that reason, it's much more of a Korean studies perspective mm. on Korea, um, which is important. It's extremely important, especially for a book like this. If you'd had a third co-author, a South Korean, how would that have affected things, do you think? Yeah, I mean, so that, that, that's a good question, because I mean, I come from Spain, and Spain, many good books about the Spanish history were not written by Spanish authors, right? And what you realize when you see books written about Spain by a Spanish author and non-Spanish author, normally they come from other European countries, sometimes from the US uh, as well, uh, is that the lived experience of a Spanish author influences right, the yeah. book, right? Even if you try to be as objective as, as possible, I know there's a lot of objectivity when we talk about history, right? But uh, that's going to influence you, right? So I would assume that having a South Korean author could have tilted one way or another in the sense that their lived experience would have necessarily informed, informed the book, right? Mm. And 
we're all humans. That's going to affect all of us, right? So that's my that's my assumption. This could have happened. Uh, it has to be said that from the beginning, I think we agreed that it makes sense for the two of us to co-author, but we didn't really want a, a, a third author to try to avoid uh, this, but also because co-authoring a book is difficult enough with two people. It worked very well, it has to be said. So we didn't have any, I wouldn't say not even major problems, we didn't have any problems, really. But were there things the that you disagreed on or things that you had to really uh, talk about a long time in order to reach consensus? I mean, I have to say, so I've only co-authored one other book with uh, uh, my good friend Dave, Dave Kang at mm. USC. Um, and in that case, we were meant to argue with each other because we wrote a debate. Um, right. about uh, engagement strategies on North Korea. In this case, um, um, I really didn't know what to expect, but it went surprisingly, I shouldn't say surprisingly, but it went very, very smoothly in the sense that um, uh, we found that the way we thought about the issue when we talked about it and when we exchanged drafts, there was a lot of overlap in the way we look, looked at these sort these sorts of things. You know, if we added another Korean author, might, might there have there have been more of a nationalist perspective. You know, it's possible. It depends on who that other author is. I mean, it could have been somebody, you know, it could have been sort of a far-left progressive. It could have been a far-right conservative. It could have been somebody in the middle, you know, who knows? But I think between the two of us, we felt that we could cover the history pretty well and pretty comprehensively and pretty objectively from a European Hmm. and American perspective. Do your politics align? And did that affect how you wrote the book? I don't know. We never talked about yeah, we it. No, we yeah, we didn't discuss it, to be yeah. completely honest. Yeah. We didn't discuss politics, from what I recall. I, I don't recall any major disagre- any disagreement, to be completely huh. honest. I mean, as you said, exchanging drafts. Yeah. But uh, not a major disagreement. Our biggest disagreement was... <laughs> our biggest disagreement was with the press <laughs> <laughs> over the cover for the, the book. Because yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the, at the beginning we didn't like the tigers, ah. um, but they stayed w- they, they yeah. stayed with the tigers, and then they gave us this hot pink, pink cover, yeah, yeah. and then we're like, ah, okay, we'll take the hot pink cover. Yeah. So <laughs> and they were right. Yeah, they were right. <laughs> they were right. That's right. They were right. <laughs> Now, Victor, I recall almost uh, 20 years ago, you were the popularizer or one of the popularizers of the term hawkish engagement. Does that describe where you are today on talking to North Korea? So, yeah, I mean, I think um, when I wrote that, there were a lot of people who thought that uh, because the term hawk was in there, Mm. they thought that I was some sort of fire breathing (laughs) demon who just wanted to destroy North Korea. And then when they talked to me when I would come to Korea and and I would talk to them, people on the progressive side, they would say, oh, you're much more reasonable than (laughs) I thought. And I was like, yeah, because you never actually read what I wrote. Mm. And so the idea behind hawk engagement was the notion that whether you are a hawk or a dove on North Korea, engagement is the only strategy we have because the further you push them into the corner, the more dangerous they become, right? And if that engagement fails, then at least you have shown to the others that you've given it the best you can, and then all of you can look for an alternative response. And I still think that that's sort of where we are today. I mean, I think our current situation of non-dialogue between the U.S. and the DPRK is, is not good. Is the United States not doing enough to, I mean, occasionally they'll say, hey, we like to talk, no preconditions. Are they not doing enough of that? So this is another situation where I think being having been on the policy side, mm. it's one of the biggest fallacies of the lack of progress in U.S. DPRK discussion, the notion that the United States is not trying hard enough. The United States, since the Reagan administration, has tried very hard to engage North Korea in a, in a constructive dialogue to get them 
to give up their nuclear weapons in return for a variety of different political, economic, um, political and economic benefits. The fact that the North Koreans don't want to take that deal in the many different forms that it has come, I think speaks less to the U.S. not trying hard enough and more to the North Korean desire you know, not to make that decision, mm. not to make that strategic decision. I don't think, for example, I don't think the Biden, the Biden administration could be faulted for not trying hard enough. And in fact, the point about no preconditions, it, again, words are policy. And if you look carefully at what the Biden administration has said lately, they have said there are no preconditions for talks and no preconditions as to the, um, as to the final end state of mm -hmm. those talks, which is, if you think about it, actually a big statement. If they're saying there are no preconditions about starting the talks and right. there are no preconditions as to the end of those talks, that is a very big statement. It's not, it, they don't say explicitly mm -hmm. uh, we're giving up on denuclearization. It does but, sound a little bit, yeah, it, it, but it implies it, but that, a, right. yeah, that it, that's not necessarily where we're heading towards. Right. So yeah. it's a very, uh, uh, words are policy, yeah. and it's a very important statement that I'm sure the South Koreans understand it mm -hmm. and the Japanese understand it. But I think for many other people, they just hear no preconditions and they think that's all the United States is saying. But I think they've tried extremely hard to try to get a dialogue started with the North. Do you think the North Koreans understand the implication too? I think so, but I don't think they're interested right now. And now, especially now that they've gotten closer to Putin, I think they're even mm. less interested now in a dialogue with the United States. Uh, Ramon, where do you sit in terms of engagement with and stance towards North Korea? Yeah, I mean, I think the point about the point about engagement, right? I mean, is the way we can deal with North Korea to try to at least have a dialogue with them that will lead to whichever uh, outcome, right? Uh, I mean, I do have to say that uh, because I come from Europe, we normally believe that Europeans are all about dialogue, engagement, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? But uh, in, in, in my view, my personal view, right, which is different from policymakers in, uh, in, in Europe, uh, is that this should come together with pressure, right? That I think only asking for dialogue, it doesn't really make sense, dialogue for the sake of dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, you have to show that if there's a successful dialogue, the pressure that's been applied on you, part of it at the very least will be, uh, will be removed, right? Uh, and being very aware of the uh, humanitarian consequences, but having said that, I mean, humanitarian consequences primarily they are because of the history of the North Korean regime, right? Not necessarily the, the, the sanctions per se. So I do sit uh, with those who think uh, dialogue is necessary, but I also think that it is necessary to underscore to North Korea that this behavior, whether you like it or not, it is illegal, right? According to international law, it is illegal, right? And it shouldn't be Accepted because it's not only about uh, North Korea, of course, right? Uh, it gives ideas to other countries and coming from Europe, Middle East is the big one for us, right? So big thinking for me, for many Europeans is, well, if we allow North Korea to behave in this way, development of nuclear weapons, then, well, Iran could go next and say, well, why not us, right? You have allowed a country which may be far away, might not directly threaten you, but may a country that is uh, uh, closer to us. And, and that's, that's really, that's something that I think should, should worry us. And uh, my case, it worries me actually as well. Now, in July, we here at NK News published a review of your book by Stephen Mercado, a retired officer of the CIA's open source enterprise. Uh, I've not met the man. Do you know him? Sure, I know Steve. In his review, uh, he praised your work in, as being free of jargon and accessible and comprehensive. But he also said that you tended to oversimplify the nuances of inter-Korean relations and didn't reckon with uh, Pyongyang's views. And one of the examples he gave was that you wrote in the book that North Korea cannot bear to acknowledge China's role in ensuring its very existence. 
But there's a tower in Pyongyang that uh, Mercado points out that commemorates China's role in the Korean War and that this tower was recently renovated and a delegation of Chinese officials headed by the ambassador actually visited that tower earlier this year. Does that not suggest an acknowledgement of China's role in ensuring North Korea's existence? Yeah, so we... Yeah, I, mean, I, I didn't read to that part of the, of, of the review, to be honest, because we do discuss uh, China, obviously, and its relationship with, uh, with, with North Korea. From what I recall, I mean, the point that we uh, make is that from a North Korean perspective, the relationship with China is not good, right? They're not... Yes, uh, they have the formal alliance. But, you know, if you compare the relationship between South Korea and the U.S. with North Korea and China, is, is there a night, right? The way they see uh, each other, the way they interact with each other. And frankly speaking, if you ask any South Korean, I mean, we know 90% of them support the alliance. I mean, time after time, right? And of course, there are those uh, who don't like the U.S. and like the alliance, but they're really a tiny minority, right? And, and with North Korea, you even see it. Uh, in my case, I have said, even when you have these 1.52 dialogues, they don't want to talk about China. They simply don't want to discuss China. This is North Korea. This is our policy. And I found them sometimes critical of China, sometimes implicitly, uh, sometimes a bit in a more explicit way, right? In a way that you wouldn't see a South Korean policymaker, whether they are left or right, right, uh, liberal conservative, because the view of the U.S. is is very different, actually. And, and that's the point that we try to underscore as well in the book. It's not the main theme of the book, of course, right? Because there is the book is about the two Koreas, sure. right? But it is about to understand North Korea, you have to understand that Chuche matters, right? Mm. <laughs> and that they want to portray themselves at the very least yeah. as a country that is uh, independent from others. And I think you see in South Korea, and South Korea is an acknowledgement of the importance of the alliance, for example, to protect the uh, to protect the country, right? And in the case of North Korea, you don't see this to the same extent by any stretch of the imagination. Now, Mercado also suggests that you're too optimistic about prospects of South Korea absorbing North Korea and becoming a great united Korea, a great power in its own right. Do you think you're too bullish, Victor, on, on the prospects of that happening? So as far as I recall, we were not bullish on the ease with which this would happen. I think where we concluded was to say that we thought it would happen, mm. that it would not happen gradually, that it would happen suddenly, uh, because as Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. And Korean history has been such that it's always, change has always come through crisis. Mm-hmm. And so I think we felt in the end that unification would happen. It would be by crisis. It would not be easy. It would be very difficult. But in the end, just as Korea has managed to survive all the other crises, it will survive this next one uh, and indeed will probably thrive and prosper in the end. That has been Korea's history up until this point. And, you know, that's, I think, where we ended. So I, I, I don't think we were bullish in the sense that we mm. thought absorption would be easy, yeah. uh, that it would be something that would happen without any difficulty and without and that the South Koreans could do it themselves. I think we felt like it would require help mm. from others uh, for, for, this, for this to happen. But, I mean, nothing ever happens easily in Korea, right? <laughs> nothing does. And so, uh, and so in that sense... That was the lesson we took from history, and I think that's the way we portrayed yeah. the possibility of unification in the future. Now, that, that's a, sort of a, a possible model of, of unification. How do you see each Korea's own policies towards unification at present? What, what's the stance of North and South Korea towards unification, or what, what scenarios are they each pursuing? You know, I think that if we're talking about the current situation, yeah. I think both have a narrative of unification that's very much in favor of their view of the world. So I think 
The North Korean Sea unification is liberation of a foreign-occupied South Korea that could then live under the nirvana and the leadership of the, North, of the Kim family. And I think South Korean Sea unification is being the liberation of the North Korean people, not the leadership, but liberation of the people to be free and living under a South Korean system. So in that sense, I don't think a lot has changed. I mean, these were the views of unification back in the 1960s, mm -hmm. and they still, I think, remain the views today. Of course, if we're talking about a different government in South Korea, a progressive government, they obviously have a different view based much more on, what is it, one system, uh, uh, one country, two systems, sort of long-term economic integration, soft landing mm -hmm. type scenario really preceded by a long period of inter-Korean reconciliation, not integration or unification. But I don't think the North Korean view on unification has changed. I think it's been pretty consistent. Ramon, do you think that North Korea actually wants to achieve this unification policy? It, it reminds me a bit about the story about the, the dog who chased the car and then didn't know what to do once he'd caught up with it, you know? I mean, it, 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 it is official policy, right? And, and I think we, we have to consider this because... North Korea has been such a top-down system, mm. right? You have to consider what the leadership says is the end goal that they want to uh, to achieve. I don't think it's realistic. And there may be those in the North Korean government, because we don't have access to North Korean, those who make the decisions, right? May those who realize that this is extremely unlikely to happen. But I do think that if it is the North Korean government policy, we have to, to take it seriously. Their statements are their policy when it, when it comes to unification, nuclear issues. Etc. Right, that's the policy that you are pursuing, and and you can assume that there is not a degree of contestation that you can see in a democracy or even in other authoritarian regimes in which the leadership is more ruled by group rather yeah. than necessarily uh, a family being in, in power since the foundation of the country. Should the two Koreas simply just recognize each other and forget unification for now and live side by side in peaceful coexistence? And is this even a viable option? I don't think they should. I mean, that's my personal opinion. I have to say, I don't think they should because you know this is a country that was a single entity mm -hmm. uh, for hundreds, thousands of years. And yes, there has been a separation, but it has been for decades compared to hundreds, thousands of years when it was, it was a unified country. And actually, we discussed this in the book, of course, the separation was very much a result of outside powers, not that it wished from the, from, the from the Korean people. So in my view, the end goal of reunification or unification, which I want to put it, I said reunification should, should, should continue. I don't think it should disappear as unlikely as people think uh, it is today. But we have seen change in many other countries. For example, we all know, of course, is, 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 is Germany. But, mm -hmm. you know, many Germans in the 1980s thought, well, that's, this was the end game. Reunification is not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And we have seen many authoritarian regimes where people thought this is going to continue forever. This regime is going to be here all my life and the lives of my, you know, sons and daughters and uh, grandsons, granddaughters. And then we suddenly saw the end of the regime, right? I'm not saying this is going to happen in, in North Korea, I'm not predicting anything. But what I mean is that if you have the end goal of reunification, then you're ready mm -hmm. if this actually is going to, to happen and you keep on being ready for that. And I, I, don't, I don't think they should give up on that, to be honest. Victor, do you agree? So if you could imagine a situation in which the two signed a peace treaty, they recognized each other, and then they just went about their own way and mm -hmm. lived happily ever after, is that possible? So I would say it's possible if two conditions are met. One, that the North Korean economy is able to survive on its own, mm. which it cannot do under the current regime, right? And two, that 
the why, why is that a necessary uh, a precondition? Because without the North Korean economy surviving, it drives North Korea in the direction of leveraging its weapons to try to get things that it wants, mm-hmm. right? Uh, relative deprivation, right? They need they need to do it. They need to try to try to achieve gains in some other fashion, right? And second, if they uh, if there is no threat of North Korea leveraging their military capabilities, uh, you know, then it it might be conceivable. But right now, given everything we've seen, we know that the North Korean economy can't survive on its own because it's not willing to open to the rest of the world. And second, North Korea has a record of being quite aggressive towards South Korea. So if those conditions are met, it's theoretically conceivable. I'm not saying this is something that the Korean people want. There may be some Koreans who want that, but you you certainly can't say the entire country wants this. Um, And the history to date shows that neither of those conditions are uh, attainable, at least based on the behavior we've seen from the North Korean leadership up until this point. I've always been of the view that all right, North Korea is, a, is an autocratic, politically closed regime. But if it were an autocratic, politically closed regime with a, I would, in quotation marks, a secular leadership, then that would be much better than a cult of personality leadership. Mm. Because uh, military dictators, as we've seen in the case of Park Jung-hee, even though they are military dictators, they can make rational economic decisions, as Park Jung-hee did in 1965. There is nothing that the cult of personality, the three Kims have shown us that comes even close to resembling rational economic decisions. These are all economic decisions that are made in pursuit of preservation of the family leadership. And they've all been decisions that have destroyed the North Korean economy. And we can go through a long list of those mistakes that they have made. So I think as long as that's the case, it's very hard to imagine them sort of saying, okay, fine, let's just Let's just stop everything here. Yeah. Let's just go our own ways. And you don't bother me. I don't bother you. I, I just don't see that happening. Ramon, what lessons can we draw from the history of the two Koreas that can inform government policy today, whether from the United States or the EU or even in, in here in South Korea? I, I think that the focus on economic policy to improve the well-being of your population. I mean, I, I know, of course, that South Korea has been held, continues to be held as a model, right, uh, for, for doing so over the decades. But I think it's uh, a, a very important lesson, even now, where co- Korea is competing at the technological frontier, really, right, uh, with other countries, the importance of taking decisions that are going to benefit the population a, a, as a whole, right, without denying those linear quality has been growing like the rest of the developed world, right? But it is true that you see the economic policy making in a way that I think benefits as many South Koreans as possible and North Korea see it in a very different different way, really benefits only a small part uh, of the population that seems to be taken. Uh, we mentioned already that politics matter. It's something that is important, I think, in a point in time you mentioned the US, uh, the EU, right? Yeah. Uh, democracies. It matters who you vote for, right? When you can actually vote. Obviously in North Korea you cannot vote, right? But it matters which leader you choose with your vote. And uh, if you choose a leader that has policies that are going to implement to the economy of your country, that's what's going to happen because politicians actually have sway, not only over or, or politics per se, but the economy uh, of the country and the well-being of the population uh, as a whole. So I think that uh, actually does matter. Another point that uh, we do uh, discuss in, in, in the book is, is um, the role of society, obviously, right? The role of society 
Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on the role of uh, women in, in, in Korean society, not only today, but going back to the dictatorial years of, so the, during the transition to, uh, to democracy uh, as well. And obviously without the situation being perfect in, in South Korean stretch of the uh, imagination. But we wanted to draw attention to the role that different groups within society can actually play in uh, bringing change uh, to, to, to the country. And I think that was quite important for us to show that this wasn't only a top-down process, but also the importance of the, of the bottom-up. Right. Uh, Victor, do you want to add anything to that in terms of what uh, we can learn in terms of policy uh, for today from the histories? So again, going back to, an, to, to the previous point that I made, I mean, if you look at sort of the history of these two countries, both of them were, you know, they had strong backing, right? I mean, the North Koreans had the Soviet Union and China supporting them, the United States, I mean, the South Koreans had the United States and Japan. The big difference, of course, was that in North Korea, all of that support that came from China and the Soviet Union didn't really lead to any sort of economic reform or opening in North Korea, whereas in South Korea it did. Mm. It led first to uh, uh, import substitution, but then also to export-led growth, and eventually to democratization, right? And that's what allowed one to be very successful and the other, the other not to be. And they, again, it goes back to the point. You know, South Korea wasn't a democracy, you know, its entire life. It started out pretty dictatorial, real, real, mm, yeah, right yeah. up until the 1980s. But even though it was dictatorial, you had leaders like Park Jung-hee, Chun Doo-hwan that made rational economic decisions, right? And they were encouraged to make those rational economic decisions by patrons like the United States. Mm. On the other hand, how many times has China tried to encourage North Korea to make the rational economic decision to institute economic reform along the lines of China, along the lines of Vietnam? I mean, we have this study where we looked at all the places that the Chinese took Kim Jong-il ah, yes. when he traveled to China. Shenzhen and, and all that. All of these places. Yeah. And it was so clearly the yeah. Chinese were trying to promote economic reform in North Korea. Mm. And the North Korean regime could not make rational economic decisions. And so, you know, this is one of the big and most important lessons mm. that we learned from the history of Korean economic development, that, as Ramon said, politics matters. Would right. you see uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, walk around in Singapore as a similar, almost like a version two of what his dad did in China, that the well, Singaporeans were trying to say, hey, you know, you can do this? Well, I, you know, I think, the, uh, f- first of all, I think the Chinese have given up. Ah. Right? They, they've, com- they've completely given up. I think in about 2009, they made the decision. They're not going to try to promote economic reform anymore. They're just going to try to extract as many resources as they, as they can from North Korea. And perhaps the Singaporeans were trying to play this role as well to try to promote economic reform. Mm. You know, and, and there were many people when Kim Jong-un came on the scene, there were many theories about how he was different, mm. a princeling, mm. that he, would, you know, he was educated in Switzerland, all this sort of stuff. Uh-huh. I was never one who held that view because it's the same system. It's the cult of personality system, and it's, it's impossible for them um, to, to make rational economic decisions. In addition to that, you know, people say, what about China? China was able to modernize, uh, uh, to, to modernize, why not North Korea? The big difference between China and North Korea, and I think we talk about this in the book, in China, the Deng Xiaoping decision was basically, if we don't reform, we die, mm. right? And in North Korea, they never face that choice because the Chinese will never let them die, right? The Chinese will le- never let the North Koreans die because they want the North Korean state to be there as a buffer. The buffer state theory still holds? I think so. Yeah. I, I certainly, it, 
I think it certainly holds in the sense that for North Korea, they did not face the same death or modernization choice mm. that China faced. Because in the end, North Korea will, I mean, China will give North Korea just enough to survive. It won't give them enough to prosper, that they, but they will give them just enough to survive. Last question, Ramon. Obviously, every history book becomes dated by the time it is published. Looking forward a decade or two ahead when a much older version of me or my successor sits here at a podcast <laughs> and interviews you for the updated version of the book, uh, what do you think would be the most likely update uh, given the current state of play? So I, I would say what I think won't change much. I think personally that South Korea will continue to, to prosper uh, economically, culturally, I think it will continue to be globally recognized politically. So I think that when it comes to South Korea, it will be a lot of, well, this is how it has continued to grow. One change that I think... What about the demographic crisis? That, that, that's, uh, I was going to get into that okay. precisely, actually. One thing I'm going to get into is how society may change, right? Yeah. Because we see increasing levels of migration mm -hmm. uh, into the country. I think the trend is going to continue. I think we see the increasingly important role of women within society. I think that's only going to, to continue within the country. Uh, I was commenting, we are coming with a group from the European Union here visiting Korea. The number of women we're meeting in think tanks, in ministries, right? That today they are uh, mid-level career officials that will continue because yeah. they're not going to quit their jobs like would have been in the past, right? Mm. So I think that will be in the book, the growing number of female leaders. I mean, I've written uh, an academic article on entrepreneurship and the number of uh, female entrepreneurs in Korea is among the, the percentage, sorry, is among the highest in, 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 in the world. So I think that will mm. reflect that in, uh, in the book. Uh, I cannot predict about the birth rate because you're talking about demographic uh, yeah. crisis. I mean, South Korea has, hasn't had a replacement level uh, rate since uh, the 1980s. So I'm not, well, I'm not single developed country is at replacement rate uh, right now. So I don't see that happening, but there may be some changes uh, there that it goes up, but I don't think will be a massive change. When it comes to North Korea, extremely difficult uh, to predict. I can assume or we can assume that the regime is going to continue to be in place because that's what history tells us. And probably with, I agree with Victor, I was one of those who believed that maybe economic reform may be forthcoming, or if not reform, at least some changes. And mm -hmm. I was very disappointed. I have to say in, in recent years that it, it hasn't happened uh, in, in, in my view what we thought may happen. So I don't want to predict that this may or may not happen but it may be that uh, you say, well, within the regime, maybe there is dialogue against, again with the U.S. and with South Korea, and this has brought some, some change. But I'm not even going to predict whether this is going to happen or not. So I'm more comfortable saying what I think we will include in South Korea, the South Korean part that has not changed and also what has changed. And Victor, final thoughts from you. What would you like to see or what do you imagine would be a possible update uh, 10 or 20 years from now? So one of them would be the post-Kim Jong-un leadership in North Korea. 20 years from now, I don't think the current North Korean leader will be ruling. Uh, for health reasons? For health reasons. Uh, would it be one of his children that likely to take over? I mean, that's what, I mean, sister and then the child eventually. You mm -hmm. know, I think that's sort of what it looks like. That would be one. The other, and this isn't a positive one, is it would have to be updated if there is some sort of military altercation between mm. the United States and North Korea. Um, in particular, having to do with some sort of kinetic action dealing with North Korean ICBMs, mm -hmm. which are you know getting closer and closer to the United States, and we really don't uh, address that in in, mm. in that particular scenario in the book. And then I on the South Korean side, I would say I mean I feel bad because Ramon's updates are also uplifting and mine are also <laughs> negative. Um, 
the the other one for me on the South Korean side would be the polarization of politics in South Korea. Uh, you see it continuing or increasing? Getting worse, ah. yeah, and where it eventually ends up. There, you know, there is a demonization on both sides now. Oh, like America. Yeah. <laughs> That's following his yeah. patron. Yeah, yeah. I don't know who is learning from whom, <laughs> but, but uh, that is something that worries me. You know, it's sort of tearing at the fabric of no. South Korean society and politics, and we don't know where it's going, just like we don't know where, where it's going in the United States. Right. Wow. Okay. Well, that is a, uh, a pl- an interesting place to leave us. Uh, thank you very much again for coming on the show, Victor Cha and Ramon Pacheco Pardo. Ladies and gentlemen, look out for their book, Korea, A New History of South and North, with the Tigers on the hot pink cover. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks again. <laughs> Attention, North Korea portfolio professionals. Are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools, and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability, and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed, and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org/professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org slash professionals. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you and listen again next time. (laughs) 